We'll be talking about the impact of gun violence in this podcast. If this is a difficult topic for you, please take care when listening. Columbine changed everything about law enforcement's approach to an active shooter. And it wasn't just in Colorado, but all over the country. Local, state, and federal agencies studied Columbine, and police officers like Omar Delgado learned, you don't wait for anything, you go in. Columbine was like, unfortunately, the mold. It was the stepping stone of what policing did wrong. My name is Amy Over, and this is Confronting Columbine. I remember we watched videos of the Columbine incident, and I guess what devolved about that was if there's an active shooter as law enforcement, we were now trained to, no matter what, take out the threat. Don't wait, no standing by, no waiting for SWAT, no you know waiting for orders or anything like that. No, you're witnessing an active shooter. You were trained to take out the threat. Mm-hmm. So you know you were taught how to do room clearing, go into a building stacked up where the main goal is to find the shooter, and that was pretty much how it was taught, I guess, throughout the country, because we all learned a lot from Columbine. Mm-hmm. I don't recall how long it took them, you know, to finally go in or, or, or what the situation was. I'm sure you, Amy, remember. It took them hours to, to get in there, you know, hours. I guess that is something they said, oops, are bad. We cannot let that ever happen again. Unfortunately, Columbine had to happen for the world. I'm going to say the world. I'm sure agencies, even in Europe and whatnot, I've also learned from that. And that's where this whole, let's go in, do not wait, let's take out the threat. On June 12, 2019, Omar got the call to Pulse Nightclub in Orlando, Florida, with 49 killed and another 58 injured. At the time, it was the deadliest mass shooting in the United States. Omar was among the first to arrive. It's two o'clock in the morning. And I clearly remember that update. It said, active shooter inside Club Pulse with multiple casualties down. Here I am going lights and sirens, you know, going 100 miles per hour, getting to that call because that's the call that when you hear it and you're on your way, you know your brother in blue is needing help. Mm -hmm. So I got on the interstate. There's no one on the expressway. A drive that usually takes about 15, 20 minutes. I think I got there in like six or seven. My adrenaline was just pumping from the drive. They don't give you a lot of information. So I'm literally expecting 50 to 100 cars there by the time I got there. When I arrived, there was only like five or six cars there. Okay. And I saw two officers hiding behind this light box in the corner. It's a hundred degrees in Florida in, you know, in June. I come around my car, I'm, I'm on nonchalant and walking up to say, Hey, what do you guys have? Because we don't know. We just know there's an active shooter inside the club. And you could just hear the assault rifle just go to town. It was just da, 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 da. We didn't even communicate with each other. We heard 
a bunch of bunch of people screaming and we just ran in. So now picture hundreds of people running out of this club and we're trying to make our way inside this club. I remember literally bouncing off people and wow. some of these people were covered in blood. Some of them were half dressed, you know, missing shoes and, and just yelling and crying. It, it was total chaos. You know how people say, oh, it turns into slow motion. Well, it didn't turn into slow motion for me. It was just full on fast forward. And I can't tell you how many people I knocked down because it's my adrenaline trying to get into this one doorway when hundreds of people are trying to get out. As first responders, you know, they say, oh, you know, you're trained for battle and whatnot. Yeah, I guess it took a while for me to realize what was really happening. Even when I ran in and I saw all these bodies and, and I heard the gunshots, I'm thinking, okay, I'm going to run in there and I'm going to see the shooter. I might have to take him out or, you know, arrest him or whatever the case is. But when he wasn't there and I couldn't see him, I was clueless on what was going on. No one knew what to do. I clearly remember hearing an officer's radio when they said to the Orlando Fire Department, hey, we need you guys to come in here. There's bodies in here. And that call came on the radio and they said, negative, we're not going in there. What do you do? A lot of those officers, they were fuming, really upset because they trained with them and said, God forbid something like this ever happened or God forbid Columbine happens. They trained. So the police go in and the paramedics go behind them. They're holding cover. They're shielding them. They're going in to save people or drag them out. Maybe, you know, do what they have to do. Yeah. The paramedics refused to go in, and that's when we had to go into action and, and start pulling people out. And a lot of the videos shows these police officers, only police officers, pulling people out. And it's because they refused to go in. And I get it. I, I, I get it. But is that what we're trained for? That's what. That's why we, we, we went into this career. We're the first responders. Yeah. We're the ones that have to run to that scene trained or not a lot of it's just common sense instinct okay me through my mind i'm saying i'm looking for someone who has an assault rifle in their hand that's who i'm looking for but when you see all these people running out i'm looking at their hands and i'm looking at their faces mm-hmm. and that that's what i was looking at but then when i finally made my way inside it was total silence I didn't see anybody standing there with an assault rifle and then being so quiet I can literally hear every time I take a step I'm stepping on glass or I'm stepping on shell casings and I'm like okay where are the shooters because when my Mm -hmm. eyes finally adjusted I'm seeing all these bodies Everyone's enclosed in a small little spot. People are just going to drop. And that's exactly what happened. And I never saw the shooter. We didn't know where he was. We didn't know if he snuck out with everybody else, if he was still inside. Yeah. And I heard that assault rifle shooting. And at a point, we didn't know if he was shooting at us or if he was shooting at somewhere else. And while I was pulling some guy, I slipped and fell. And... 
I literally grabbed him and I brought him all the way up to me and I'm laying on the ground and I'm using him as a shield. And another officer was on top of him. He said, stay down, stay down, stay down. Amy, I, I still remember hearing the guys breathing. I think he might have had a collapsed lung or something because he can, he was like, <sighs> and once he said, okay, get up, get up, get up, because the shooting stopped, I literally just kind of pushed him off me, picked him up, and then we, we still brought him out. And that's where I had all the blood on me. The news of the shooting was out, press was descending, and family members were frantic to get in touch with their loved ones at the club. And I clearly can see the people who's calling, and I can see mom calling, I saw dad, I saw a brother calling. And these people were blowing up these people's phones because Facebook Live and whatnot, when that happened, they posted it immediately, and. People started knowing what was going on. And these people knew that their loved ones were at that club. And and, and I knew I, I would look down because the damn phone would just not stop ringing. And, and I couldn't touch it. I couldn't turn it off. I couldn't answer it. I just had to watch it ring and ring and ring and, and see the caller ID and see the picture. Their loved one, they're no longer here. Mm-hmm. They'll never be able to pick up that phone again. I remember one vibrated so much that it literally was floating away in a pool of blood because it it just would not stop. I will never own an iPhone because the ringer, you know how the, it has this distinguished ringtone that you know it's an iPhone. Yeah. Well, every time I hear that at the mall or outside or whatever, I freeze. I literally have to grab my ears and I can't explain it. I don't know why I still do it, you know, almost five years now but I freeze. What don't they train you for when a scenario like that happens? Well, in, for example, in my case, in, in the club pole shooting, the training scenarios, they're in a control atmosphere, obviously. You are told, hey, go into this building and we're gonna go look for the bad guy. And that's all fine and dandy. That's how you train. I guess what they failed to mention is there's going to be bodies. There's going to be the smell of blood. There's going to be the smell of gunpowder. There's going to be the smell of death. There's going to be brain matter all over the place. They failed to mention all that. And in reality, that is what you went through. And so now you're trying to process your training that, you know, in my case, we got maybe once every six months, maybe once every year. And you're trying to remember that training as you're stepping over people and you're slipping and sliding because you're sliding all over blood. Yeah. No one's ever going to know the scenario, what's exactly going to happen. But these are things that just kind of sneak up on you and you're like, whoa, I don't remember ever training for this. And having all these people piled on top of each other, it was one of the worst things I've ever seen. But the experience of saving someone's life is like, wow. You know, I was able to save like Angel Cologne. I saved him. I pulled him out. Never knew who he was until we met. Angel Cologne was 26 years old. After being shot six times, he was certain he was not getting out alive. There's a patio on the side of the club. And one of the cops actually was able to go through there 
And I looked up and he was there, he was looking inside and he was yelling, who's alive? Um, at this point, I, like there, there's actually a few people that were still screaming and I, I look at him in the eyes, I'm like, help me, please help me. Largely thanks to Omar, Angel did survive. He endured three surgeries and months of rehab. They reunited when Omar went to see him in the hospital. But what tops that is when his mom grabbed my face and she said, thank you for saving my baby. I was just doing my job. I was just being a police officer and maybe not even just a police officer. I was just being a human being. I just appreciate you. I know this is not easy, but I appreciate you sharing your story with me. It's my pleasure. There's nothing like meeting another survivor. For more information on The Rebels Project or to donate, please go to therebelsproject.org and see me there. Want to know more about the Confronting Podcast? Please follow us at Confronting Pod on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook for photos, additional content, and discussions about the podcast. We are all confronting something, and I look forward to continuing the discussion from our episodes over social media with all of you. If you enjoyed this one, please subscribe to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you so much for going on this journey with me. Confronting Columbine was produced and hosted by me, Amy Over. Executive produced by Nancy Glass, Andrea Gunning, Ben Fetterman, and Carrie Hartman. Produced by Julie Clark. Associate producer, Trey Morgan. Editing by senior audio editor, Matt Dovecchio. Editor, Drew Wallace and Dean Welsh. With production assistance from Megan Paisley and Brianna Fars. Other members of the production team include Kristen Melcuri. Pete Ward and Natalie Thomas. Music and original composition by Mide Music. Confronting Columbine was produced by Glass Entertainment Group, Glass Podcasts in partnership with Wondery. <laughs>